Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. There's something about numbers and the news. It was known that young indigenous students kept dying under strange circumstances in Thunder Bay. But it was only when the number hit seven that it became a big national news story. We knew, we've known for years, that many children died at residential schools and are buried there. But it was only when an unmarked mass grave of 215 of them was discovered that these atrocities suddenly seemed to matter. And it has been understood for years, within indigenous communities anyhow, that a lot of prominent people in the media and in universities who call themselves indigenous aren't. But it took one big case, the scandal over novelist Joseph Boyden, to shake loose the second big case, the Michelle Latimer story. And now with two famous names establishing a precedent, well, it's just a matter of time for anyone who's been whispered about to find themselves getting called out. It happened earlier this month at Queen's University. Listen, every time the complicated and thorny issue of Indigenous identity becomes a specific personalized scandal about Indigenous identity, well, the fallout is ugly. And today's case is no different. Canada Land editor Danielle Parody dug into the drama that is currently unfolding on campus well, virtually on campus anyhow, in Kingston, Ontario, at Queen's University, and she brings you her report in a moment. Wait for it. (laughs) 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Ryan Parker, Sarah Malouk, Sean Wallace, Mike Stackhouse, Amy's Moses Marion, Tristan Duhame, Miguel Mendez, and Jeremy. Hello, this is Jeremy Hayes, Visionary Director of the LA Sunshine Project, a learning community with nature. I listen to Canada Land for quality, actionable information to help me make choices that make the world a better place. Earlier this month, this Google Doc was DM'd to us. It was also making the rounds on Twitter. It was out there, but not in a big way. I wasn't sure what to make of it. At first glance, it looked like it might be an academic paper. It's a report titled Investigation into False Claims to Indigenous Identity at Queen's University. I thought for a moment that it was an official piece of research from the university itself. It wasn't. In fact, it wasn't from anyone. It was anonymous. The report takes specific aim at six people, including several academics associated with the school. It says that they are not genuinely Indigenous. It says that they've been misrepresenting themselves. It includes their names and photos of them. The document claims to dig into their genealogies and family histories. It looks at census data and other information. And whoever wrote it says that they've reached a definitive conclusion. Our findings confirm that Queen's University is currently overrun with white Canadians making false claims to Indigenous, especially Algonquin, identity. We are confident that our thorough research has focused on six of the most prominent and harmful cases, most of whom play inordinate roles as Indigenous gatekeepers on campus. The anonymous authors might feel certain about their conclusions, but I'm not. I asked the people implicated by this report to talk to me, but most did not respond. I'm not going to name them here, except for one, for reasons that I'll explain later. I think it's important to say that I didn't independently verify the claims made in this anonymous report, and I didn't try to. Whether these academics are pretending to be Indigenous or not might be an important question, but before getting to that, I had some other questions. Like, who wrote this thing? Isn't it an issue that we don't know? Do they have a personal vendetta against the people that they named? If they believe that what they have written is true, why won't they sign their names to it? All this is happening shortly after the discovery of 215 bodies at a Kamloops residential school, 104 graves at a Manitoba residential school, some without burial records. The list will keep growing. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission found that 4,100 named and unnamed students died. These sorts of stories shake loose old issues, and conversations that have been going on for a long time have bubbled up to the surface. Right now, there's a broader discussion on pretendians happening across Canada. The discussion about who is and who isn't Indigenous is a difficult and nuanced one. As a Métis person, I think it's one that needs to happen. But as a journalist, I think verification and transparency matter. And so, to be honest, my first reaction to the report was to ignore it. Some anonymous person or persons called out a bunch of people on the internet? So what? I didn't plan on covering the report just because it exists. And I expected Queen's University would ignore it, too. I was wrong. 
We reject the anonymous document in question, which is misleading and contains factual inaccuracies, including some genealogical information of individuals named in the document. That response from a Queen's University spokesperson came out within 48 hours of the report circulating. Queen's also said it was investigating the origins of the document and would take appropriate action to support those whose professional reputations were maligned. As soon as I read that, I knew things were just getting started. Queen's didn't even have to recognize the existence of some random Google Doc linked to on Twitter, much less pass judgment on the quality of its research. But once it did, questions followed. The report contains factual inaccuracies? Okay. Does it also contain accuracies? Are parts of it true? Are you more interested in finding out if any of it is true, or are you just protecting the reputations of your staff? When an open response letter followed, signed by hundreds of people, including prominent Indigenous academics like Pam Palmetter, I was totally unsurprised. While we may have differing opinions of such a report, we stand unanimous in asserting that there is a larger issue here, that Queen's, along with many other academic institutions in Canada, blatantly refuse to address. That is, their legal obligations to First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities whose rights are affirmed and protected under Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982 to develop transparent policies and procedures regarding the equity hiring of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis faculty. The signees called on the university to retract its statement. The CBC and Canadian press picked up the story, and it seemed like Queen's now had a full-blown crisis on its hands. But I still didn't know who wrote the thing. I obtained an earlier version of the report, dated June 7th, and a look at the PDF's metadata turned up a familiar name, Daryl LaRue. The presence of his name in the metadata doesn't mean that he wrote it necessarily, it just means that it probably passed through his hands at some point before it was made public. LaRue is an associate professor in the Department of Social Justice and Community Studies at St. Mary's University in Halifax. He wrote a book called Distorted Descent about racism and colonialism among French descendants and the way family lore shapes narratives of false indigenous identity. He calls this race shifting. In 2019, he explained his research to APTN News. First Nations people out east have also been expressing concerns around how this movement, so whether we call it the Eastern Métis movement or something similar, hmm. is really opposing Indigenous forms of sovereignty and self-determination. So Indigenous peoples don't actually get to decide who belongs to their community and for which reasons. Instead, what we have is a number of white people who are turning themselves in a way, sometimes magically, into Indigenous peoples against what Indigenous peoples themselves would like. You may also recognize Daryl's name from the recent Michelle Latimer controversy. He was a frequent commentator on her contested claims to Indigenous identity. I asked him how he was involved in the report. He didn't answer that question, and he declined to give me an interview. But he did say this in an email. I think it's important that Algonquin people have their voices heard on all of this. He passed me two names and suggested I talk to them. I called up one of his suggestions, Kyle Brennan, a member of the Kitigan Zibi Ashinaabeg First Nation. 
Kyle also signed the open letter. He's not an academic, just someone who says he's a passionate community member. The thing I've always appreciated about Daryl is Daryl's works like, you know, I'm, my mom's French Canadian and my dad's Algonquin, but um, his work's very focused within his own demographic. <laughs> like he's not necessarily studying the phenomenon of racial shifting at large. He's studying distinctly what French Canadians do, which, which, you know, being Algonquin, being from the most populated Algonquin community in the larger nation, and also being French Canadian, I'd sort of seen it in that environment. So the specificity of his work is something that I always kind of could speak to. Kyle told me why he thinks the authors of the report chose to remain anonymous. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of reasons. I, I think, um, you know, the primary being it's, I don't think anybody ever wants to call anyone out on their identity or question it in any sort of sense. It's never great. But I think I think the other element is the kind of fallout from the Michelle Latimer court case. Um, the fact that, you know, despite all all kind of discourse on the subject that Michelle Latimer's team has, has sort of decided to sue Indigenous journalists for libel has sort of set an environment where people are afraid of sort of these things. Yet, you have a scenario where, you know, obviously with the, I guess, the unearthing of mass graves at residential school, there's also a, um, a sort of fever pitch of frustration in terms of failing institutions that have failed people so sort of those things kind of come together where, you know, you have an institution that might be empowering people who have some seriously tenuous claims to indigeneity. And then you also feel like this environment where you could get sued for it because, you know, Michelle Latimer is setting a very, very poor precedent. Did Michelle Latimer's libel lawsuit put a chill on the discussion about false identity claims? Maybe. But some people are still willing to speak up. Veldon Coburn is an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa in the Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies. He is also Algonquin. He signed that open letter to Queen's, demanding that they take the claims made in the anonymous report seriously. I was curious why an academic like Professor Coburn would put his name on the line in defense of people who wouldn't take the same risk with their own names. Well, you don't have to look at the author to understand how serious it should be taken. I think Indigenous scholars and the Algonquin Nation take it very seriously, irrespective of whose name may be on it. It's the contents that matter. Professor Coburn didn't want to speculate about the authors of the report, but he did seem to know a bit about its origins. Well, from what I understand is there were some loose documents floating around, and this is what I discovered from what I heard, is that that report might actually be about a year old, that some people compiled some information and just circulated for people to take a look and examine it. The Algonquin have been talking about this, and we've been going to court, and we actually have court cases pending on these particular issues. It's critical for us because individuals that are not Algonquin are making claims to territorial title and Algonquin rights. And this comes in the midst of our work and finally concluding the largest modern treaty in Ontario's history. He's talking about a treaty negotiation that's currently ongoing between the province of Ontario and the Algonquins of Ontario. The claim covers a territory of 36,000 square kilometres in eastern Ontario, an area with more than 1.2 million people. If successful, the negotiations would produce the province's first modern-day constitutionally protected treaty. 
ten communities are negotiating the agreement, and one of them is a splinter group of a controversial nation called Ardok, which happens to be the non-status group to which several of the individuals named in the anonymous report belong. The specific questions raised by the report about claims to Algonquin identity are familiar to Professor Coburn. It's a little bit difficult for myself with my commitment to the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation, especially those that are being disenfranchised on the Quebec side, because for the Algonquin Modern Treaty, that will end up modifying and extinguishing a lot of their rights and title to territory that they will have no say in. So it will come across as very anti-democratic, but at the same time, what's happening is questionable and tenuous and very remote Algonquins. And I think that's very charitable for many of them who might not even have an Algonquin ancestor. What I learned in talking to Professor Coburn is that the anonymous report was not some new list of accusations that just materialized last week because of the Kamloops discovery or because of Michelle Latimer. It seems that this issue has been a long time coming. And those other stories are just the circumstances that brought it to light. What this is actually about is Ardoch. Ardoch Algonquin First Nation and Allies first appeared in 1981. Like I said, it's controversial because not all of its members were Indigenous. Ardoch is a non-status organization. It's not recognized as a First Nation under federal law. We reached out to them for comment, but didn't hear back. And this brings us to the one name from the report that I will share today. There's no way to talk about Ardoch Algonquin Nation without mentioning him. Bob Lovelace, Queen's University adjunct professor and former Ardoch chief. We reached Lovelace at his home, and he didn't agree to a full interview, but here is what he had to say about the report on that call. Well, I, I don't have to defend myself. I know who I am. The university has uh, vetted my credentials over the years. I've been there over 25 years. And, uh, you know, there's nothing to, to, to say or defend myself in this. I don't want to talk too much about it, but the report that was circulated on, on social media was extremely inaccurate, poorly researched. You know, it was an attack. It wasn't a, a study of any sort. Um, and the problem with that is that it has left some people, whoever the authors of that report, in a position where criminal charges could be brought against them or a libel suit. And frankly, um, we do know some of the people who were uh, authors of the report, or at least editors of the report, and in discovery, they will have to simply divert who it is that wrote the report. And that's what started all of this. You know, nobody was very interested in Ardoch for a long time until this arrived. And here is what Lovelace says about himself and his Indigenous activism. I have been extremely fortunate to live in the Ardoch Algonquin First Nation community in the traditional land. I have been involved in Aboriginal politics for some 40-some years through the constitutional discussions, through the early stages of defending territory even before constitutional recognition in the 1960s and 70s. 
Uh, to see those move through a growing administration of Aboriginal law and policy. So I sort of lived that history and um, I've been able to teach about that. Here's Professor Coburn talking about Bob Lovelace's role in the founding of the Ardoch Nation. You know, founded by an American man who made his way up here as a draft dodger in 1969, would then come and lay claim to our territory is, you know, you know, it, it's a big issue for us, especially after 30 years of, you know, going to the tables for negotiations with the Crown to settle these differences. We have individuals coming out of the woodwork claiming an ancestor, if even the ancestors themselves could be uh, legitimately Algonquin, are so distant and remote that... I am unsure that it would give them any moral claim, let alone a legal claim, to the work that we're doing. I think we've seen some in different industries, especially entertainment. Most recently, the questionable claims of Michelle Latimer to Algonquin identity. You know, there was a bit of fallout for that. In academia, it's been fairly rampant and just sort of an open secret. Professor Coburn has this to say about others who suddenly claim Indigenous identity. Other Indigenous scholars that have community connections look a little bit sideways at people who just all of a sudden in their mid-40s do some rummaging online through Ancestry.com and find out that they might have something way back 10, 12 generations that could possibly be enough for them to check off a box or modify their faculty profile to give themselves a little bit more cachet. Of course, there are plenty of Indigenous people who were severed from their communities and identities by things like residential schools and the 60s scoop, where children were removed from their home and placed in foster care. Lots of these people reconnect and reclaim their Indigenous identity later in life. But that's different than how others suddenly claim inclusion, says Professor Coburn. I think there's an exceptionally huge difference between somebody who might have been scooped and somebody who's reaching into the graveyard. They weren't even alive when these other individuals were alive. So they weren't even alive when other people may have overlapped the lifetime of those. Whereas somebody who's 60 scooped, they're coming from a community that already existed and in all likelihood probably still does exist. That's what they're um, reconnecting to. There isn't any really reconnecting to somebody from the 1600s, 10 generations ago. I couldn't say that I would know them personally if they gave me the name. I barely know anyone beyond the names of my great-grandparents. I didn't even have a relationship with them. But how the nation renews itself through families, if there was a living connection to them, then yes, but it just seems like a little bit dishonest that they will not own up to perhaps their settler or colonial roots. I mean, they're always welcome. I don't think there is enough in a very, very distant ancestor. Here again is Kyle Brennan talking about Bob Lovelace. And then he got arrested and they kept talking about this Algonquin man. And just speaking through other Algonquin people, people were sort of talking about this is an American individual who sort of immigrated to that, who's occupying a space as the leader of this community that calls themselves Algonquin. But uh, outside of that, I know that he's just been heavily involved in working in post-secondary institutions. So that was my introduction to Bob. But I think Bob is somebody that's like, you know, 
his allyship to indigenous people is probably unquestioned. It's just the lack of self-awareness in terms of the kind of like, you know, the implications of him not calling himself an ally and him calling himself an Algonquin and saying that it was okay because he was adopted by one other guy, you know, and like, you know, a new created leadership. What I learned about Bob Lovelace is that he was heavily involved in the development of Indigenous studies at Queen's University. He said he was born in St. Louis, Missouri, in or around 1948, to a white father and a mother he's described as Cherokee via her own father. He's a longtime activist. His protests against a uranium mine in 2007 landed him in jail after Ontario's Superior Court found him guilty of contempt for failing to obey an injunction ordering him to stop. He was celebrated for that. Videos show his supporters with placards reading, Gandhi, Mandela, Lovelace. We also know that while in prison for his efforts to stop uranium exploration in the Ardok area, he began reading the Quran and later converted to Islam. It put Bob in a position where he could not um, come out of jail. He's in jail right now and refusing to obey the order. So we need to we need to remember him and to, to keep this fight going. So we have some words from Bob right now. Uh, Judy was able to, to get a speech from him, so we're going to play that right now. Lovelace is a controversial figure. He invokes things that people who spoke with me consider to be the ecological Indian trope. Lovelace has some unique ideas about Indigenous identity. Here he is saying that in the womb, we're all Indigenous. But the basic of that is that, you know, in the womb, we're all Indigenous. And we're all human beings. We all have similar drives. We all have similar needs. And so when we think in a, just in that fact, in a binary of settler and Indigenous, what we're saying is that indigeneity doesn't emerge from settlers. But it does. Everyone who is born, well, you're a fetus in the womb, the only expectation you have is to be born into an indigenous world because you only have a paleolithic memory at that point. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community 
They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. The anonymous report says Lovelace still has outsized influence at Queen's. Professor Coburn agrees. You get the sense that when you go to Queens, well, at least a decade or so ago, whenever I arrived to do my PhD, is that there was no Indigenous presence. Like, it was very minimal. And I had left two other universities prior for undergrad and then my master's degree in territories that were there's significant Indigenous populations, Thunder Bay and Regina. And I arrive at Queens. It's not too far from my home, Pickwaknagon, and that's about an hour or so away from Queens. And Queens is right at the sort of nexus of the border of Algonquin territory. So I'm close to home, but there's really nothing visible on that particular campus at the time. However, in the news, Bob Lovelace, with a very high public profile because of you know the, the arrests and the contempt of court and all of those other matters was known for at the time because there was, you know, considerable public support for him. There were people waving placards in public marches and protests, and the placards would have three names on them. They would have Mandela, Gandhi, and then Lovelace. So there was sort of an absurdity, and people would tell me when I arrived there, oh, there's this other Algonquin guy, he's really great. But that was about the extent of it. So He was there already for a good 15 years, apparently, and for the longest time, I think he was the only Indigenous presence there, which isn't surprising because there was very little at any universities up until recently. So perhaps he ingratiated himself with those that had certain authorities. You know, he he was the one delivering probably the only classes in any degree program there that had significant Indigenous content. I've seen his public talks, and it really seems like some new age romanticism of the ecological Indian. You know, just the really romanticized image of the Indigenous person who is as sort of like a Zen-like connection to the natural world, so that there's something mystical about their abilities that are almost innate within them, that is inherent to them. The ecological Indian is the one that really knows their true existential place in the cosmos. And that's sort of stereotyping of Indigenous people in past Hollywood, popular television shows, what have you. You get that sense from them, but nothing of the very serious sort of political science that I went for. I never took it, but uh, the Indigenous universe seem to revolve, like, spin on the Bob Lovelace axis at Queen's. After the open letter, demanding that Queen's retract their initial statement, the university doubled down. Their second statement asserted as fact that the professors implicated in the anonymous report are Indigenous. Finally, they sent us a statement saying much the same. 
This time, it was attributed to two Indigenous senior administrators. Here's part of it. As Indigenous members of the Queen's community, we understand this is a very complex issue, and this recent discourse has been both difficult and upsetting. However, we are concerned with recent allegations raised against some of our Indigenous academics and community members through an anonymous report. We did not simply reject the document, but rather, being privy to authentic personal records, were able to assess and determine that the report had cited erroneous records and ignored important facts. Brennan, along with others who signed the open letter, are not satisfied with this response. I think for most people, it's a frustration of kind of a dismissal of people's concerns with it. I understand that they feel the anonymity of it is not necessarily the best component, but they didn't acknowledge their direct elements of it, and nor do they feel any level of necessity to change their process about electing people into Indigenous equity positions for their faculty without reflecting upon what a lot of people have now sort of said. I think that letter with, I think it has over 150 signatures involving like, I think almost 20 of the most prominent Algonquin scholars and elders and and people. But I think, yeah, that's the real problem with it is that we sort of see this sort of um, self-indigenization movement as as doing the opposite of what a lot of the truth and reconciliation is kind of hoping for, which is to create more opportunity for Indigenous people, for people who've been incredibly disadvantaged multi-generationally because of the Indian Act and because of discriminatory policy. And I think to see an institution who's kind of been quite complacent in relationship to that, to kind of be dismissive of some direct call-outs in terms of, of faculty who, you know, who've occupied their space for some time is kind of disheartening considering even the climate similarly to the residential school or the truth and reconciliation report you know people have been talking about mass graves at residential schools since 2008 so it's not necessarily like wanting people to actually listen to indigenous voices be conscientious of the harm that happens in these spaces all of this brings us to the most difficult question at the root of the whole issue who is an indian according to the indian act It is a person who, pursuant to this act, is registered as an Indian or is entitled to be registered as an Indian. Since the late 1800s, the Canadian government has regulated Indigenous people under this act. This legislation categorized people as Indians for the purpose of control. Reading the act is really wild. It created racial segregation in Canada, along with the reserve system, residential schools, and Indian hospitals. South Africa's apartheid system was based in part on Canada's Indian Act. It was founded on paternalism. An 1876 Department of Indian Affairs report explains... Our Indian legislation generally rests on the principle that the Aborigines are to be kept in a condition of tutelage and treated as wards or children of the state. So yeah, that's not who I want determining whether or not I'm Indigenous. I first wrote about this after Joseph Boyden's Indigenous identity came under scrutiny. I felt a touch of sympathy and still do for Indigenous people who feel like they don't belong or for people who don't know their history, for an Indigenous person raised or living in an urban environment, or for an Indigenous person who was scooped from their family. It can be a challenge to claim your identity. In Canada, you need to decolonize your own story in a diaspora. By way of example, I'm Métis, and my family comes from Red River. 
Far from clinging to Indigenous identity, my family has walked through the world with the privilege afforded to those who could pass as white. At the same time, my grandmother passed on the tradition of jigging, which is traditional Métis dancing, to my sister. My grandmother, who lived in St. Boniface, Manitoba, grew up around Métis culture in a way that her children and grandchildren have not since moving to Alberta. Still, to be Métis, to prove that beyond family lore you belong to a group of people, you have to be able to answer the question of who you are. It's the first question you're going to be asked when you meet another person from Red River. It's like a game to find out if you're related. When I spoke to Kim Tallbear, a professor at the University of Alberta, about Boyden in 2016, she told me, I don't feel like most people who play Indian are being deliberately disingenuous. She explained that many families claim a First Nations ancestor, and that in the U.S., it was very common for people to come up to her to tell her about the blood ties they had to Indigenous people. When I wrote about Boyden, I said that I still believe in conversations around Indigenous identity. It matters where you come from. The conversation isn't about holding up ideas of racial purity, also known as blood quantum, which, by the way, the only other areas where we talk about blood quantum are horse breeding and dog breeding. The point is that it's about letting communities define themselves. In order for that to happen, there has to be an open conversation. But what's happening at Queen's isn't that. There's an anonymous report, a professor who won't discuss any of this, and who brings up the notion of criminal charges for doing so, and a university administration flatly rejecting the claims being made because they are satisfied that the people in question are legitimately Indigenous. End of story. But it's not the end of the story. Probably not at Queen's and certainly not everywhere else. We're going to see this again and again. In institution after institution across Canada, there are faculty members who are identified as Indigenous based solely on self-identification. Administrators who are unqualified to assess the legitimacy of these claims simply took people at their word and recognized Indigenous communities for a long time either didn't know about this or stayed silent. That's over. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, please support it. If you like it and you're on an iPhone, go check it out on Apple Podcasts. You can support it so easily. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Our website is canadaland.com, where you can catch a new episode of Commons this week, all about Canada's real estate obsession and the shocking stories that result from it. This episode was reported by Danielle Paradis with files from Cherie Sucharin. It's produced by Tristan Capicione with Damalola Oname. Special thanks to Jonathan Goldsby. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, if you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures 
And it's very likely that we're gonna be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you gonna get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 